Uh, the reading this evening is from um, Philippians. It's Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 12 to 18, and it's on page 1,171, uh, 79 even, of the Church Bibles. That's page 1,179. So starting at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ, that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's not likely that uh, anyone here this evening is going to become a celebrity nor would you probably want to do so, since celebrity is now synonymous with notoriety rather than with achievement. But, you know, without sounding too cheesy, we can all be stars, or like stars. Stars are only seen by the naked eye in contrast with the night sky. The darker the night the better the view. For that's when the stars brightly shine. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants us to do, to shine in a dark world following the example of Christ. Our section this evening, which is just these few verses from Philippians 2, starts with the word therefore. Whenever you see that, you realize that he's saying, that on the basis of what has just been written, this is what you, the readers, should now do. Now, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, was probably the first recorded song that has survived. And we read in verse 9 of it, Therefore God exalted him, that's Christ, to the highest place. That is an affirmation that Christ's obedience to be born as a man and to die on the cross for our sins with its uh, exclusion from life with the Father for the first and only time in his, in his existence has met with divine approval, God's approval. In other words, the rescue mission from heaven to save us on earth from our sins has worked. Christ paid the penalty instead of having to pay it ourselves. So Christ was raised from the dead and exalted to the primary place in the universe. The verdict of men has been reversed by the verdict of God. And therefore, verse 12, Paul directs that we as Christians should follow Christ's example as the principal of uh, my old theological college puts it in his commentary, 
God's therefore, verse 9, is matched by the Christian's therefore in verse 12. And that, he says, in a nutshell, is what this passage is all about. You see, just as God assessed and then reacted to the worth, the value of his son's life of obedience, 9 to 11, so Christians must reflect on the example of Christ and determine on a worthy response. You see, being like Christ should be a Christian's greatest concern. And here, it's spelt out for us. And we have the procedure for attaining it. So verses 12 to 16 are directives, and from 16 to 18 we have incentives. So 12 to 16, not only commands do we have, but we have reassurances. It strikes the balance between what we do and what we strive to be with what God has already done. The directives are things like obey and work in verse 12, do in 14, be blameless, etc. in verse 14, shine, 15, hold fast or hold out, verse 16. And the reassurances are that God is at work in us, 13, that you are children of God and you are stars or lights in the dark sky, 15. Christian life, growing to be like Jesus, is a blend of rest and activity. Not alternating between the two, but it is a blend, both operating at the same time. So we are resting confidently, for example, on what God is doing within us, as well as actively pursuing. In other words, we are doing our duty to strive to be as blameless as possible. So let's try and examine these verses a little bit more in detail and see what he wants of us. So if you're a Christian, God has, um, God is in your life from the time that you were converted and you are then expressing his life in the world. So each of these verses has somebody at work. The Christian is working out, verse 12, and God is working in, verse 13. There is a blend between what we have to do and what God is already doing. And should you want to explore that kind of uh, brain-crunching kind of uh, question of, well, um, how does it work, the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, then you can read some books. You can read a nice thick one of that title by Don Carson, or you can read a much briefer one called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by Jim Packer. I commend either of those to you. Now, there are three marks of this relationship that we have with God, our Heavenly Father, and they are the marks of obedience, responsibility, and sensitivity. So as far as obedience goes, whether Paul had been with them as he was at Philippi in Acts 16 and Acts 20 on his second and his third kind of trip throughout the eastern Mediterranean when he was uh, basically introducing the Christian faith to different communities and establishing Christian congregations, or whether he was absent as he was of course at the time of writing this letter. 
He knows that whether he's present with them or whether he's absent from them, that they have been obedient to the Apostles' teaching. Now, you know, one key test of the quality of your Christian life is this. What are you like when no one is looking? Now, of course, you can never have no one looking because God is always present. Omnipresent, as the theologians term it. Term it. Because that is the real you when no one's watching. McShane in the 19th century observed, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Now the responsibility for your soul, the essential you, the eternal you, your consciousness, that which lasts forever, is yours. It's your soul, it's your responsibility. No one else's. You are responsible for becoming more like Jesus in character. He doesn't change your personality, that's a comparatively neutral thing. But our character are our moral qualities. And as you draw on the means of grace, which are the scriptures, prayer, remembering through the sacraments, that's how we cultivate growth in our life. You see, our salvation is not an objective to be reached, nor is it a benefit to be merited. It is a possession we receive at our conversion, which is then to be explored and enjoyed more fully. It is a bit like marriage. You might get married and you think, that's it. But oh no, there's a whole lot more to learn and enjoy. Sensitivity. We read with fear and trembling. That's not the fear of someone who's lost and is terrified of departing this world to an unknown destination. No, it is the fear of hurt. Hurt that we might cause him who has given us so much at such great expense. So that's our work as obedient, responsible, sensitive believers, which arises out of the internal work of God in our life. We can work because God is at work in us. He's at work and we respond. His work is the inner work of transformation and renewal, and our work is obedience to him as we explore the benefit of him living in us. And the indwelling of God has marks, marks of activity, things we do that can be seen, effectiveness, completeness, and free divine choice. So God's at work in us, he is active, he never sleeps, he never lets us go, he never forgets us. The word in Greek for work is energio, from which, of course, we get our English word energy. The Greek word has connotations of work that achieves its purpose. You know, it's not fruitless work, it's effective work. And completeness, every action that we as human beings take involves the will and the mind and 
the deeds we do. It involves volition and intellect, which is conscience and rationality. The natural us, you see, either can't choose what is right, or if we do know what is right from wrong, we fail to do it. Not always, but sometimes. Because sin corrupts both our power to choose and our power to do right. But God, at conversion, enters our lives and works within us to do both his will or our desire, that his will becomes our will and so our desire, to do what is right and to work in us that we will actually not only have the desire but we will take the action to do what is right in everyday life. You see, this salvation that we have is truly of God. You can see it all the way through Philippians. So in Philippians 1.29, the faith that we placed in Christ was actually, first of all, God's gracious gift to us. We wouldn't have done it unless he had taken the first move. And then in Philippians 1.6, God's activity guarantees and brings about completeness in Christ, at which we are to aim for. And then we have here 2.13, the divine indweller is ceaselessly at work in the period between the beginning, 1.29, which we are to remember, and for me, that was the summer of 1966, a month after England won the World Cup. The Beatles' yellow submarine was number one, and I was at a place called Westbrook on the Isle of Wight at what would now be called an urban saints camp. And it's important to remember that, to check that I understood and that my response was genuine and right and true. And he's at work until the end that we wait for, Philippians 1, 6, the day of the Lord. Now you might wonder, why does God choose you? And he does it because he wants to. Not because of anything we do. If you were here last week on a Sunday morning, you'll know that we were looking through the book of Deuteronomy. And in chapter 7, verse 7, Moses answers this question. You know, why does God love us? And this is what Moses says. The Lord did not set his affections on you or chose you, choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept his oath. In other words, his promise he swore to your forefathers. His explanation is simply this. God loves you because he loves you. Full stop. That's it. That's the answer. At least, you know, that's all we're told. Now in the next part, 14 to 16, we're to cultivate Christian character and shine like stars. If we receive a debt, a debit or a credit card or a discount card, before we could receive the benefits of that card, we have to first of all activate it. And our new nature 
in us as a gift of God is something that we have to activate. He moves in us and we are expected to respond to him in obedience, which then unlocks the benefit of having a new character and new conduct. Now Paul commands us to do all things, but surprisingly he doesn't specify anything in particular that we're to do. Now we might think that's a bit odd, but you see it's not so much a course of action that he's hoping for as a kind of person that he wants. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Complaining reveals discontent with God and hampers doing what he wants from us. Arguing or disputing or quarrelling distracts from what his objective is for us. He's not specifying some kind of rule of life, but a sort of person, blameless, pure, without fault, in contrast to those around them who are described as a crooked and depraved generation, among whom you shine like stars. So note, this is an outward display of our new inward nature, without complaining, without disputing, with the objective that we might become children of God with the character traits of our Father, and then to give evidence of him before the watching world through our lives the lives which he is in the process of transforming. Christian ethics calls us to be what we are, children of God, which isn't about wishful thinking or having a fond hope or an impossible target acquiring superhuman endeavour. No, it's none of those. It is a present reality. Waiting to be worked out in our conscious, responsive behaviour to the gracious act that he has done in our lives. Christ is in us. We expend energy to show him shining out of us for all to see. And then how? How do we discharge that responsibility? Well, look at the setting that we're in, in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Look at the contrast between Christians shining like stars in a dark sky and others living in darkness and distortion. And then the means. How, do you, how does God change us? Well, he does it through the word of life. Now, the only things you can know about Jesus outside of the Bible are written by Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius and Julius Africanus. And nothing they tell us isn't already in the New Testament. You can only know Jesus through the New Testament. It's only knowing Jesus and letting him, the real one, into our lives that we can live like him for the world to see him. Try and bypass the Bible and you'll be off with the fairies on a flight of fancy because any Jesus that you dream up independent of the Bible will turn out to be a false one, one of your own creation, one to suit you, with all the mixed motives that we have and the disobedience which is ingrained within us all. 
But with the real Jesus of scriptures working in us, we will shine, we will be markedly different and people will see. As we hold out, Paul says, the word of life to dispel the darkness. Crooked means bent or distorted. Depraved means perverted or upside down, the wrong way around. Without the word of life, Christian character is impossible. But at the same time, the light that Christians do shine out is actually inexplicable without the biblical narrative to explain what accounts for the difference. And finally, the last couple of verses, the Christian incentive, the day of Christ. The Christian life is a life of hard work. It's about character development and it is about having a bright witness. The Lord Jesus in his life on earth had, we are told, encouragement. The encouragement of what was termed the joy that was set before him. And the Apostle Paul's perspective is from that day of the Lord, the day of Jesus' return, to gather those who are his to himself. Now Paul doesn't want to see these Philippians to be absent from that gathering, that collecting of the Lord when he returns. If they were, Paul would, he says, have run the race in vain. He would have laboured, worked hard for nothing. Now both those images may well have come from the world of athletics. The Greco-Roman world, as you know, was very keen on athletic games. They had a number of them, not just the one at Olympia, there were others in parts of Greece as well. And to take part in those, you did have to rigorously train. Now the other image is also from the pagan world, the pagan world of sacrifices, where they tried to placate the gods of their own creation. And we read, poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice. Apparently a small cup of wine was poured over the larger animal sacrifice to complete the ritual. Now Paul sees his little sacrifice, as he would see it, as small, a small contribution alongside the great big sacrifice, the sacrifice that Jesus made. And the Apostle Paul did give up a very great deal in order to live the life he did for 30 years. He wanted to hold out the word, word of life so that others in the Eastern Mediterranean could embrace it too. He was a star pupil. He was, uh, if they had a university and the vice-chancellor was Gamaliel, then he was at it. He clearly, from his writings, has a very great intellect. But perhaps even more importantly, he possessed a, the character traits of the highest order. And he had the kind of personality that would have enabled him to, have, to, to rise to the top in any field that he might have chosen to enter. Instead, he sacrificed that. He poured it out as he imitated his saviour, who gave up even more to save us. The Apostle Paul suffered beatings and shipwrecks and lashings and imprisonment 
And at the time of writing, he faces the very real possibility of execution. It would have been, an, as it was in fact, an unjust execution. But he knew that was coming close. And yet, we read here that he sees it as joy. Not because he's not taking life seriously, that he's being frivolous. No, he's, he is somebody, joy means where somebody knows that what they're doing and the place that they're in and the position they're in and what the future's likely to hold, that they know they're in the right place held by the all-powerful hand of God himself. And that's why he can express joy and he wants them to share in that joy with him. And I want to end this evening, not with words from me, I'd like to introduce you to somebody who um, is a Christian from a very different place than we are. She is a North Korean girl. She was 18 when this film uh, was shot in Cape Town at the Lausanne Conference in 2010. Her name is Jong Yoo Song, Son, and she was born in North Korea in 1992. Uh, she fled with her family uh, in 1998 and then uh, she, whilst in China, the family became Christians. But her mother died of leukaemia whilst pregnant with her second child. The father then studied the Bible and he went back into North Korea where he was discovered and where he was imprisoned for three years. He returned to China but he wanted to go back to North Korea to, again, and he did around 2005. And in, from 2006, apart from knowing that he was again taken, she's never heard of him since. So watch and reflect. It's, uh, it's quite inspiring and it's very different from our experience.